This is a Tech Briefs Media Group podcast. This is Billy Hurley with NASA Tech Briefs. I'm speaking with Dale Cruikshank, an astronomer and planetary scientist in the astrophysics branch at NASA Ames Research Center, located at Moffett Field, California. Now, Dale, your research specialties are spectroscopy and radiometry of planets and small bodies in the solar system. I'm interested in your work with the NASA ESA Cassini mission. Can you tell our readers what that mission was and what it told you about Saturn's satellites? The Cassini mission uh, to the Saturn system uh, has been a tremendously successful uh, space mission conducted both jointly by NASA and ESA, and it's still in progress and, in fact, is expected to be in progress until uh, the middle of 2017. Uh, the the mission has uh, it, it's a flagship class mission in that it's a very large spacecraft with numerous instruments aboard. The ESA uh, component was the uh, Huygens probe, which uh, roughly a year after we arrived at Saturn was released from the main spacecraft bus and then made a uh, parachute descent through the atmosphere of Saturn's largest moon Titan and eventually landed on the surface. And in fact, it conducted scientific measurements for something like two and a half hours after it landed, even though it wasn't technically designed to be a lander per se. The the remaining part of the mission, uh, which, as I say, continues, includes an investigation of the the planet Saturn itself, the atmosphere, the uh, aurora that occur in the atmosphere, Saturn's magnetic field, the trapped particles that are in it, as well as Saturn's rings, of course and Saturn's uh, satellites, too. Uh, Saturn has a very large number of satellites, uh, something like 62, I think, um, of which the, the largest ones are close into the planet, and those are the ones we've been studying with uh, several of the instruments on board the spacecraft. You found many kinds of ice on several small uh, planetary bodies. Can you talk about that a bit? Where have you found the ice, and what kinds of uh, conclusions are you able to draw from these findings? natural uh, thing to suspect uh, might be present in the cold reaches of the uh, of the planetary system. And uh, what we have found over the years, both from telescopic observations made here on the ground and now more recently with spacecraft observations, is that uh, there's a wide variety of ices, not just frozen water, but frozen carbon dioxide, which we find on uh, Mars in the polar caps, for example, dry ice. Uh, When we move farther out into the solar system, we find, in addition to frozen water, uh, we find frozen methane, natural gas, and uh, other hydrocarbons, such as ethane, and possibly uh, still more that haven't been fully identified. uh, If we go even farther out in the solar system, as far out as Neptune and Pluto, uh, at which the temperatures are something like 35 to 40 degrees absolute, we find uh, frozen nitrogen. And, of course, nitrogen is the same thing that's in the Earth's atmosphere, the bulk of the Earth's atmosphere. But at those extremely low temperatures, uh, nitrogen freezes into a a nice shiny ice uh, on the surface of these bodies. So uh, a good bit of what I've been interested in over the years is the exploration of the solar system in terms of its ices and also minerals, by the way, but in particular the ices. We, uh, together with a couple of colleagues in 1976, which seems like a long time ago, we, we discovered the methane ice on the surface of, uh, of uh, Pluto, 
And we also found uh, a few years later methane ice on Triton, which is Neptune's largest moon. And since then, uh, nitrogen and frozen methane have been found on a number of objects out beyond Neptune in what's called the trans-Neptunian object region of the solar system. You mentioned minerals. What have been some of your interesting observations when it comes to minerals on other uh, planetary bodies? We know a lot about the minerals on the moon, of course, partly from telescopic work and the fact that we have 850 pounds of the moon uh, back here in the laboratory. And so the, the minerals that we find on the moon and other celestial bodies or planetary bodies include the so-called igneous minerals, the ones that are formed in, in uh, pockets of melted rock, uh, usually in the interior of a planet. So we find those these igneous minerals, which include olivine and pyroxene and a few others, but the details uh, of their composition and, and their distribution on either the moon or Mars um, are of special interest. We find these minerals also on a large number of asteroids, uh, uh, most of which have orbits between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. And we go farther out in the solar system, and we still see vestiges of some of these very same minerals. What we've uh, learned in the meantime, while we've been searching for all this, is that these very same minerals occur in meteorites, which are fragments of asteroids that fall on the Earth, and uh, they also appear in the dusty regions uh, that surround uh, stars elsewhere in the galaxy. So certain of these minerals, in particular olivine and pyroxene and a few of their relatives, are more or less ubiquitous throughout our galaxy, and we have every expectation that they occur widely in other galaxies as well. And the importance of these minerals is that it, they tell us something about the native, that, that is the composition of the native material from which uh, the whole galaxy has formed, as well as the processing that that material has undergone to produce the rocks and minerals and ultimately the ices that we see uh, at the present time. What kinds of work are you doing now with spectroscopic analysis of asteroids and, and comets? We continue to do ground-based telescopic work on comets and asteroids using spectrographs. <clears throat> And some of this work is done with uh, the largest telescopes in the world, including the, the Keck 10-meter telescopes uh, on Mauna Kea and Hawaii. A lot of the objects in the outer part of the solar system are so faint and distant because they're so small uh, that uh, it requires the largest telescopes in the world really to detect their light and to analyze it in the way that we like to, to get the information about the, the composition of these things and ultimately something about their origin and history. So we're continuing to study comets and small asteroids. Um, a particular class of asteroid that has just kind of emerged in the last few years is, in fact, uh, has kind of blurred the distinction between comets and asteroids. Asteroids typically are rocky bodies, some of them are metallic, that are in very stable orbits around the sun. And we figure that they've been in those stable orbits for most of the age of the solar system uh, in excess of 4 billion years. and during that time, they should have pretty well cooked out any uh, gaseous material or icy material that might have been in, inside. But what we've found to our great surprise just in the last couple of years is that some of these things considered to be asteroids are actually behaving like comets. So somehow they've sequestered a supply of ice and gaseous material in their interiors uh, for all this time. And there's still, and even now, uh, things happen to cause this stuff to leak out 
and to give a what was formerly a well-behaved asteroid the characteristics of, uh, of a comet, namely a, a cloud of gas and dust surrounding it, and in some cases a tail. With these observations, what kinds of other tools are you using to make them? One of the other important tools that we use is, um, is a technique called radiometry, which means to measure the intensity of the heat radiation that's given off. Now, objects that are extremely cold and far from the sun don't give off very much heat, but they do give off some. And with the techniques we have, uh, both on the ground with big telescopes and in space with infrared telescopes, we can measure that heat. Now, it isn't just a matter of trying to measure their temperatures and let it go at that, but it's intended, in fact, to try to uh, give us information about the structure of their interiors and surfaces, because the rate at which heat leaks out is a, a measure of the, the nature of the surfaces of these objects. And we can combine that information with the compositional data we get from spectroscopy to get a much clearer view and more complete view of the way these things, these little bodies in space, are uh, packed together and uh, the way they respond to the uh, heat and light of the sun that shines on them. How can these techniques in spectroscopic analysis and radiometry be used in commercial applications? Are there any partnerships with industry that resulted from this work? Not directly from this work. The um, industry, of course, builds the spacecraft that we use <laughs> to, to make these measurements in space when we go to a planet and get into orbit around it, as we are with, the, with Saturn and the Cassini mission right now, and with other um, spacecraft that simply fly by the target and make the measurements on the fly and then radio the information back. So that's a, a partnership. But the, these techniques, principally the spectroscopy technique, has been long used in chemistry and in physics for well, well over 100 years to uh, probe the inner workings of molecules and atoms by the light that they either emit or uh, absorb. So spectroscopy is a, an enormously powerful tool for studies of the composition of materials in the laboratory, uh, whether it be for pure research or for industrial purposes. And that same technique, with just a few modifications, is what we use either at the tail end of a big telescope to look out into space, or on a spacecraft which is flying by a planet, or a spacecraft such as the Spitzer Space Telescope, which is still in, in orbit and working, uh, to look at other galaxies and uh, star systems and other planets elsewhere in our, in our universe. Bill, I was hoping to look a bit into your biography here, too. You have an asteroid named after you, is that right? 1988, asteroid 3531 was named Cruikshank by the International Astronomical Union? That's correct. Is that, that, is that a good uh, one? <laughs> it's, a, it's a nice honor. It, uh, it's certainly not a unique honor. The, um, the people who discover the asteroids, and there are some specialists, some of whom have found hundreds and hundreds of them, um, according to the International Astronomical Union, have the, the privilege of recommending uh, a formal name rather than just a number for an asteroid. And so a lot of these folks, some of whom I work with, uh, honor their friends and uh, sometimes their pets and their favorite rock group <laughs> with, uh, with names that originally, back when asteroids were sort of only a few of them known, they were named after Greek gods and, and other notables and mythological characters. And so here we are now um, with one named after me and 
several of the people I work with, in the company of uh, Greek gods. And um, <laughs> so it's, a, it's an ego boost. It's not by any means a unique uh, honor, as I said. And by the way, there are at least a quarter of a million more asteroids unnamed. So, <laughs> so I have a shot? Potential for, um, for naming a good fraction of, uh, of the population <laughs> with an asteroid for each. That's great. You can't buy it, by the way. You can't buy it like you can uh, a star name. It has to be conveyed by the International Astronomical Community. <laughs> you have to earn it. <laughs> you, spent, uh, you spent a year in the USSR as a National Academy of Sciences exchange scientist. What kinds of work did you do there? Well, that was a long time ago. Um, in the end, I, on three different visits, I spent a total of about two years there. But when I finished my Ph.D. work at the University of Arizona in the late 60s, it was clear that there was a Russian scientist working on the same kinds of problems that I was. And um, so I applied for this program that the, the uh, National Academy had as an exchange arrangement with the Soviet Academy of Sciences and was able to spend uh, a year there in 1968-69 working with the guy who was doing a very similar kind of work to, to mine. At that time, he and my boss back in the U.S. were the only people in the world doing this kind of work um, because it was pushing the technology of the time to, to make uh, infrared spectroscopic measurements. Uh, and uh, so it was an opportunity to see firsthand uh, what he and his people were doing, uh, to learn from him, to work with him, and establish uh, what turned out to be a lifelong friendship and collaboration. So we had... Uh, uh, many years of uh, collaborating and discussing and mutual visits, and uh, that turned out to be a very positive thing in, uh, in the development of my career. As an astronomer at the Institute for Astronomy, you helped with the development of Mauna Kea, an important uh, observatory site. What role did you play in that development? When I went to the University of Hawaii in the summer of 1970, uh, the decision had already been made to build a telescope on that site which is at an altitude of about 14,000 feet. It's a difficult environment to work in because of the low oxygen and uh, limited access by a bad road and all that. But nonetheless, um, the University of, of Hawaii and NASA had already put a medium-sized telescope up there and it was just coming into operation in the summer of 70. So I was one of the first users of that telescope. The conditions to use it were a bit adverse, but... Uh, I was young and eager, and it was an opportunity unmatched anywhere else. So together with colleagues uh, who had the similar inclination, we made very good use of that telescope and demonstrated the utility of that particular site as a, as a world-class, maybe the best in the world, site for infrared astronomy from the ground. That's before we had infrared telescopes and facilities in space. So... On the, on the basis of the work that we did and the results we got, which were quite unique, um, other organizations decided to put infrared telescopes up there, too. For example, the United Kingdom put an infrared telescope up that went into operation in 79. Um, the Canadians and the French teamed up um, to put a, a large telescope there that also went into operation in 79. And NASA decided to put a dedicated infrared telescope uh, up there as well. And it was the third of the three that um, came into operation in 79. Since that time, the importance and efficacy of that site have been so, de so well demonstrated and uh, reinforced 
that uh, the Japanese have a telescope there. The Keck uh, Observatory, with the two largest telescopes in the world, has been established there. And uh, there's a, yet another giant telescope and more, uh, more to come. So it was the early work that uh, my colleagues and I did at that newly opened site, which, as I repeat, was difficult to work at, still is because of the altitude, that um, made it clear that infrared astronomy uh, could best be done there, that infrared astronomy is critical to the uh, understanding of the universe, planets, stars, galaxies, the whole thing, and that uh, that's a great place to build a telescope. So many countries and many organizations have done so, and it remains to this day uh, the premier infrared observatory site in the world. So Dale, looking at uh, your years of um, spectroscopy and radiometry experience, what has been the most exciting discovery for you? I think the most exciting discoveries have been the detection of these uh, ices on the uh, objects in the outermost part of the solar system. Uh, in particular, Neptune's largest satellite, Triton, uh, which is an object uh, roughly the size of our moon, but it's a long, long way away, uh, we found... Uh, frozen nitrogen there for the first time. I already mentioned the discovery of frozen methane on Pluto, which was a few years earlier, and then eventually nitrogen on Pluto as well. And the, the excitement around those is that, that those discoveries were the first indication that we had of the presence of these other ices other than frozen water and frozen carbon dioxide uh, in various parts of the outer solar system. And in the case of both Pluto and Triton, the nitrogen ice on the surface is actually the source of, a, of thin atmospheres that surround those two bodies. So both Pluto and Triton have very, very thin atmospheres that result from the presence of the nitrogen ice uh, slowly evaporating on the surface. So at the same time that we found the ice on the surface, we found uh, atmospheres surrounding those bodies. And that's, uh, that, that's a very exciting um, thing to, to experience and to participate in when you reveal a truth about objects that are so remote and thought to be so impossible to observe because of their distance and small size. Nonetheless, the techniques that we have and that we're able to finesse uh, allow us to, uh, to find these amazing things, and then that leads them to further understanding of these bodies, how they came to be, uh, what has their evolution been in the, uh, in the intervening four billion years or so, and so on. Now, just to follow up on that a bit, since I picked both Triton and Pluto, in 1989, the Voyager spacecraft, NASA spacecraft, uh, flew by Neptune and Triton and revealed the surface of Triton in a way that we never thought we would see before, with high-resolution views of its icy surface and also showed that its surface is, is quite young, geologically speaking, which means that something's going on inside of Triton that keeps melting the ice from time to time. We also found geysers shooting up out of cracks in the surface of Triton up into this thin atmosphere I mentioned. And at the same time, so in, in that process, Triton was revealed as a not just a cold, dead, icy body far, far away, but as a dynamic, uh, planet-sized object that's doing something. We don't know what exactly, but it's, uh, it's not dead and uh, lifeless in the geological sense. At the same time, we are now on our way to Pluto, and 
in uh, July of 2015, the New Horizons spacecraft, a NASA spacecraft, will fly by Pluto in the way that we did with Triton in 89. And we are expecting uh, tremendous discoveries when we see Pluto at last up close and personal with the, uh, the New Horizons spacecraft, which, uh, by the way, is, is working very, very well. We have every expectation that it'll that it will uh, have a highly successful flyby in July of 2015. Thanks, Dale. We at NASA Tech Briefs appreciate your taking the time to speak with us today. My pleasure.